Okay, we're on um, 1 Kings and chapter 18. One Kings eighteen, and uh, we're going to read the the first sixteen verses. Right, here goes. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, "Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth." So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah revered the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred and hid them by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah the other. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah knew him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah said, Wherein have I sinned, that you will give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom that my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you whither I know not. And so, when I come and tell Ahab and he can't find you, he'll kill me, although I, your servant, have revered the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred of them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Ahab, uh, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now then, here we've got... Um, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and the Lord says, right, go and show yourself to Ahab again and I will send the rain. Now, three and a half years have passed since Elijah came on the scene in chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, I know it says here in the third year, but if you just nip over to the book of James, uh, we can actually get a little bit more specific uh, idea of the timing involved. And in the letter of James, in the last chapter, chapter 5, and uh, the second part of verse 16 we'll start reading at, James says, The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Elijah was a man of like nature with ourselves, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. 
Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. So, what we've had in chapter 17, verse 1, where we started, Elijah came on the scene, he proclaimed the drought to Ahab. And then, you remember, he went to Brook Cherith, and then the widow of Zarephath. And now the Lord says, right, go back to Ahab. So we have three and a half years between Elijah's first encounter with Ahab and the second one that is coming up here. And what that tells me again, and we've seen this before, the Lord isn't in a hurry. Three and a half years, that's quite a long time. You know, one meeting with the king, prophetic proclamation, and then three and a half years go by before the Lord sends Elijah back. And his dealings with us take time, because in the meantime, yeah, this three and a half years, the Lord was doing a work in the nation, and blah, 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 but in that three and a half years, he was doing a work in Elijah. And God's dealings with us simply take time. And uh, I've said before that God's not growing a backyard full of mushrooms, but a forest of oaks. And that's what he wants from us. You know, he doesn't want far-sprouting mushroom Christians who are all froth and bubble and talk and no action. Do you know what I mean? But oaks are strong, they're stable. Oaks can withstand incredibly strong winds that other trees just are flattened by. And that's what the Lord wants in us. And to develop our characters and to mature us simply takes time. And character and maturity is far more important than what you might call our ministry. Uh, our ministry has got to come out of our maturity and character. So that Elijah, he went on the scene up to Ahab and he started, but then the Lord knew that Elijah had to mature far more before that ministry could actually proceed. And it's the same with us, long years of God dealing in us, but it's not what we do that what counts in the Lord, it's what we are. And uh, so only now, three and a half years later, is Elijah sent back to carry on his work in regards to Ahab. Now, at this point in the story, enter stage right Obadiah. Now, Obadiah was one of Ahab's highest officials probably Ahab's right-hand man. So Obadiah was as high up in the royal, you know, kind of circles as you could get. And here when Ahab said, look, we've got to find water, you know, he, he took some kingdoms, Obadiah, the others. So Obadiah was really high up. And he was a believer and he was faithful. He loved the Lord. And uh, his actual name, Obadiah, means a servant of God. So here we have a man who followed the Lord, but he was a high-up official in the king's court. Now, there are two things that tonight we're going to note about him. The first is we're going to note something he had done, and then we're going to move on and to note something he was thinking. But first of all, the something he had done, because Obadiah had done something and it was important. Now, the passage that we've read here tells us that Elijah was merely one of many prophets who were functioning during the time of King Ahab and Israel's degeneration into idolatry, etc., etc. Elijah was not the only one. There were, in fact, hundreds of them. Now, most of them have been murdered by Jezebel and her followers. And... Um, and one might think that that would explain why Elijah was all alone. Um, but in fact, it doesn't. 
Because what we learn here is that Obadiah had rescued a hundred of these prophets and uh, he'd hid them by fifties in a cave. So there were at least a hundred other people around who were prophets like Elijah and they had been hidden by Obadiah in a cave and that's the something that Obadiah had done. He'd hidden all the prophets except Elijah in a cave. The ones that hadn't been murdered, the hundred survivors, they were hiding in a cave and Obadiah had arranged that for them. So therefore, one prophet was out there doing the business. The other hundred were hiding away because they gave in to fear. They were so fearful of what was happening that rather than being out there with Elijah, they ran away and they hid. Um, they shouldn't have been in that cave at all. They should have been out there, ideally, with Elijah. Now, when I first read this story, probably some 20 odd, odd years ago, my initial reaction to these guys hiding in the cave was that, as far as I was concerned, they were snivelling turncoats, they were cowardly wretches, and I had no time for them. You know, I thought, oh, unfaithful lot, you know, hiding in caves because they were frightened. Elijah out there all alone. Um, but it didn't take long before my estimation of these guys changed. And, I mean, think about it. These guys had seen their friends and their colleagues savagely murdered. Now, okay, they'd run away, they'd given in to fear. They couldn't handle the situation. But what we've got to realise is that it wasn't, it wasn't fear merely of what people might think about them or say about them behind their backs. They were in mortal danger. They were in fear of their lives. And uh, the fact that they run away, I, I can only say, is that I feel extreme sympathy for them. And if I was to be honest, had I been one of them, I've got a feeling that I'd have been in one of those caves. I, I would have put a personal note in the Times personal column asking Obadiah to get in touch with me very quickly because I'd want to know where the cave was. And Obadiah, and he'd been led by God to do it, okay, these guys are bottled. They shouldn't have done, but they did. But in the grace of the Lord, the Lord arranged for them to be looked after and to be fed. And this brings to mind very much, and allowing for the fact, it's not that these guys were bottling out because of what people might say about them, they were in fear of their lives. They had seen their friends murdered. Now that's heavy. I've never been in that situation, and I'm certainly not going to pass any judgment on people who bottled out of being in such a situation. So I don't know what I might do. I think I do know. I'd, I'd have been in that, that cave. And it brings to mind the teaching that Paul gives about the weaker brother. And I think that he, I mean, all of us are weaker brothers at times, aren't we? And in this situation, these prophets could not handle the situation and so the Lord hid them away via Obadiah and also what's interesting later on in this series we're going to find Elijah running for his life and hiding in a cave as well so that kind of puts it in perspective Elijah was out there doing the business 
alright, following the Lord, fearing no man. These hundred guys, they did fear man, they were in the caves. But later on, ironically, we're going to see Elijah giving in not to the fear of man, but to the fear of one woman. <laughs> we're going to discover that Elijah held no fear of Ahab, he held no fear of the nation of Israel, he held no fear of the prophets of Baal, but we're going to see that Elijah was terrified of Jezebel and that Elijah later on runs and hides, you know, in a cave for his life as well. So, the point is that here we're seeing that there are times when virtually the enemy drives believers into caves. And of course, however much sometimes the Lord understands, you know, that we end up in caves, it's not good that we do so. So, what we're going to do is have a look at some of the, the caves, in fact, two caves that Satan will try and drive believers into so that they can't be out serving the Lord. Uh, the first cave, go to Joshua, which is uh, back in the Old Testament. Joshua, <clears throat> and if you find chapter 10. Book of Joshua, chapter 10. <coughs> and we'll start reading from verse 22. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 22. Now, what's happened here is that there's been one of the big battles. Um, Israel are pressing in to the Promised Land, into Canaan. And they've got all these Canaanites fighting them and Israel has to go in and dispossess them. So it's battle after battle after battle. And there's just been a battle and uh, the battle that they've had has been against five nations. Alright, now then let's start reading from verse 22. Oh yeah, what's happened here is that Israel has defeated the armies, the five armies of the five kings, but the five kings themselves, seeing that things weren't going well, they, they you know, fled into a cave. They were hiding in there. Now this. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And they brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. They're the five kings. And when they brought the kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and put them to death. Now, what we've got here is what I will call the cave of fear and discouragement. And discouragement goes with fear. You can be encouraged or discouraged, all right? And the, what's happened here is that Israel, they've come up against this battle, and they're, they're frightened of the Canaanites, you know, and they're discouraged. How are we going to overcome them? And so what happens is that Joshua, and it's good leadership here, Joshua, having beaten the armies, they've fought them off. Joshua brings all the men, and he gets these kings who are snivelling and hiding away in the cave and he brings them out and he says right now then I'm gonna put them on the ground and each one of you you come and put your foot 
on the neck of each king. And what Joshua is saying to them, he's saying, look, these are the men that you feared so greatly. The Lord has sorted them out. Come and put your feet on their necks. And that what Joshua is saying is, come and confront your fears, overcome them and realise that however big they seem to you in the Lord, they're nothing. Can you see? In one of the Psalms, King David said, the Lord has delivered me from all my fears. Now what's interesting is he doesn't say the Lord has set me free from the things that I feared. He says the Lord has set me free from all my fears. And there are times, and Job found that one of the things that Job said is what I greatly feared has come upon me. Now there are times when what we fear doesn't come upon us, but there are times when things that we fear happen. And in those times, what the Lord is trying to show us is that if we face those fears in His strength, then we can actually find out that that fear can be completely overcome. It's tremendously important to realise that. For myself, I mean, it, it, I, you know, I suppose it's getting better as the years go by, but I, I mean, certainly when I was younger, I had a, a, a real struggle with fears. Uh, now, I mean, different people can have different fears about different things. Um, you know, but one of, I mean, for me, the idea of co correcting people or confronting people, it still terrifies me to this day. It, it, it is something that I really shrink back from. For me, anything for quiet life. Now, that's my makeup. Um, and it's, it's, it's been something that, that has really been a major work that God has had to do in me for me to get in many situations, and they are the very situations that I just do not want to be involved in. They're the things I hate most, and yet it's just, you know, what God has called me to do, it's just part and parcel um, of the work that I have to do. And, uh, you know, but I, I can see over the years that, that these fears have diminished. I won't say they've gone away, not by any means, they're still very big to me. But it's good to get years under your belt where again and again and again you've, you've experienced going into a situation that terrifies you, but going into it because you've got to be faithful to the Lord and then finding that it's not anything like as bad as you thought it was going to be. And, uh, you know, it's important to realise that and, you know, sort of really getting your foot on the neck of, um, of various kings. And I think I've said this before that in the Bible, Fear not, those two words, fear not, um, are in there 365 times. Now that's a fear not for every day of the year, and in a leap year you have to use one twice, obviously. But I think that's there because the Lord knows how many situations confront us that do induce fears into us. But over the years, I've kind of, again and again and again, as it were, approached this cave of the five kings, trembling, extremely hesitant, only to find that I come out of it with my foot on their neck. And that is absolutely super. And this thing about putting your foot on the necks of these kings, <coughs> tie that up with what Jesus said about Satan being under our feet. And when you put those two things together, here Joshua is saying, look, you feared these kings, 
come on, look, they're helpless, put your feet on their necks, alright? When you tie what he did up with the teaching of Jesus that Satan is under our feet, it makes you begin to realise, in fact, how much of our fears is simply Satan playing his old mind games on us. Much fear is actually induced by Satan himself. And so therefore, the more we put our foot on Satan's neck in areas of our lives, the more that we're going to find that we can overcome whatever it is that he's doing. Now, I want to make clear that whereas the Bible says fear not and be bold and be strong, um, that it's not a sin to be fearful. Being afraid or fearful itself isn't a sin. That's a feeling, all right? But it's giving into it that's a sin i.e. there might be something that you know you've got to do and in faithfulness to the Lord, the Lord wants you to do it you know you've got to do it to be faithful to the Lord you've got to do it but you're fearful of it now it's not a sin to be fearful of it but if it's something you know God wants you to do it is a sin if your fear prevents you from doing it do you see what I mean? so it's not the feelings of fearfulness that are wrong it's when we give in to our fearfulness and uh, one of the things that, you know, I've had to do and, you know, sort of like over the years is to, to really identify cowardice as a sin. <laughs> Alright, you know, and I've learnt that for myself because I'm a coward. And if you think about it, cowardice, what's at the root of it? It's selfishness, isn't it? There's something that needs to be done, there's a situation or whatever, and I'm frightened, I'm fearful of doing what the Lord wants me to do. So. If I give in to my cowardice, what am I saying? I'm saying I am more important than the Lord. And so at the root of cowardice is selfishness. And so therefore it is important, um, you know, that we really do confront our fears and begin to overcome them. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, Paul says this, Encourage the faint-hearted. Now, obviously, each one of us has got to overcome our fears. But there's a part for fellowship here. Because we can help each other to overcome our fears. Can you see? If I'm faint-hearted, you can help me, you can jolly me up, you can encourage me. If you're a bit faint-hearted, I can do the same. And so this isn't something that we can do purely on our own. You know, various fears in our lives. Oh, yeah, we've got to get them sorted out before the Lord, but he uses us to do it in us. You know, encouragement and mutual upbuilding, that's tremendously important. And it's also, given that fellowship has a part to play in overcoming our fears, it's also extremely important that we are a fellowship where each one of us feels safe with each other. Um, remember that scene in The Marathon Man when Laurence Olivier has got Dustin Hoffman in the dentist chair and he's going at his nerve with a drill and he's saying, is it safe? Now, you know, I mean, that's important. We've always got to ask ourselves, is it safe? And we've got to make sure that as a fellowship that we are safe for each other. Because think about it, if you've got fears that you want to overcome and you're in a fellowship and there are people there who are always confronting you, always humiliate, always challenging you. you. You know, you dare put a foot wrong because someone's going to come down like a ton of bits, of bricks. That's going to increase our fears, that's not going to decrease them. 
And so it's why it's so important that we really know that even though we do need to correct each other at times, that we know it's coming out of a heart of love and that we know that no one's gunning for us, no one's trying to put us down, and if one person cracks someone else, that is only because it's from love. And that makes a fellowship safe, and therefore we can actually help each other to overcome our fears, because fearfulness breeds insecurity. Love makes us feel secure. And so therefore, the more that we're loved, the more that we know that we're loved and accepted, the more the Lord will help us to overcome our fears. And uh, just, just go back to Joshua chapter 1, and uh, again, just to see the Lord's advice to Joshua. Joshua's about to lead God's people into Canaan. It's a picture of spiritual warfare. It's a picture of discipleship. And what he is saying, or what God here says to him, certainly applies to us as well. Just, just pick a few verses out. Uh, first of all, the, the first part of verse 6, God says, be strong and of good courage. Now the Lord says that to us, be strong and of good courage. The beginning of verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. And uh, verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? Be not frightened, neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that is the final answer to fear, that the Lord is with us regardless of what comes upon us, regardless of what we're going through, the Lord is there with us, and he is our strong tower, and he's protecting us. Even in the times when the things we do fear happen, nevertheless the Lord is in there with us. Just go to Psalm 23, just um, end this particular section off with Psalm 23, it's the one everybody knows, that one, the Lord is my shepherd, but um, find verse 4, when David says this, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that picture there of the rod and the staff is the idea of the Lord, our shepherd. And a sheep has nothing to fear if it's got a shepherd who is infinitely powerful and infinitely kind. And Jesus is our shepherd, and that is exactly what he is like. So, there you've got the cave of fear and discouragement. Let's have a look at another one. And this is a, a favourite of Satan's. Um, 1 Samuel, and find chapter 22, if Satan can drive us into this cave, he'd certainly be well happy. 1 Samuel, and find chapter 22. Now then, the basic background uh, to this, we're just going to read the first two verses of 1 Samuel 22. But the basic background to this is that uh, Saul has blown his kingship. I mean, Saul was anointed to be king over Israel, and, and right from the word go, he wouldn't obey the Lord. He was a rebel. <laughs> and uh, so God replaced Saul with David as king, and anointed him, and David knew that he was going to be king. Uh, but rather than being king quickly, for years and years and years and years, David was actually on the run as an outlaw, and Saul was trying to kill him. You know, so I mean, again, David, he got, if you like, the vision, he knew he was going to be king. But it was years and years and years and years before he actually was king. And the, in the interim, 
was basically David running for his life for years and years, and he ended up considered to be an outlaw, a bandit. He wasn't, but that's what people thought of him, and again, it was God preparing him and humbling him so that when he did become king, he'd make a better job of it than old Saul did. Anyway, let's, uh, let's read the ver first two verses of 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there, and you'll find at this point, you know, in David's life, it's an, David departed from here and he fled there, and then he had to get out of there and he fled there, because he was on the run for years. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So his family find out he's there and they join him in this cave. But not only his family, listen to this. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. Now, this is what I would classify as ending up in the cave of depression and despair. Can you imagine 400 tales of mutual woe being exchanged? <laughs> hours and hours and hours. I mean, the next person speaks, oh, that's nothing. You wait till what you hear what I went through. And then the next person, oh no, I've been through all that before I was even 10 years old. You wait till what happened to me next. And moan, moan, moan. You know, everyone with a sob story, everyone with a groan and a gripe, they all ended up in the cave of Adullam. And, uh, and what we need to realise is that so much depression and, and despair actually comes from nothing grander than the mere self-obsession. Um, I don't doubt that there's a, you know, medical depression that some people get, but most depression when people work, work, work like that, it's pure self-obsession. Um, it's what I call the poms, the poor old me's. It's as simple as that. It's when people are feeling sorry for themselves. And uh, what we've got to do is that when, you know, we end up in this cave, depression and despair, you know, when it's sort of, ah, uh, and everything's blah, all right, well, we've got to realise that the great danger is then is that we're on a big self, you know, poor old me trip and we're getting obsessed with ourselves. And uh, so what's the way out of it? Well, verse 5, go down into verse 5. Then the prophet Gad said to David, because David's been in this cave with his 400 people, moan, 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 and he was probably praying that God would rescue him. So God sends a prophet to him. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Gad calls this cave a stronghold. And in the New Testament, stronghold is always a picture of an area that Satan's got his, his teeth into. And depression and despair is when Satan is getting his teeth into you, right? He says, look, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. And Judah means praise. And the answer to depression and despair is praise, praising the Lord. Now why? Right, the cause of depression and despair is being obsessed with yourself. Praise is completely forgetting yourself and centering on the Lord. So the answer to depression and despair is praise, getting our minds off of us, our problems, our woes, and getting our minds back on the Lord and praising Him. And so therefore, that is the way out. And I've often found that 
<coughs> I mean, anyone can wake up and feel depressed, or anyone can find a, like you know the you know the blues coming on. Now I found one of the keys to it is ignore it. I found it really does work. If I start to feel a bit depressed and looking on the negative side, I can concentrate on it and respond to it and go down all the negative thinking. Or I can say, all right, I'm getting depressed, I'm feeling down, right, I'm just going to ignore it. And if you ignore how you feel at times like that, you'll actually find it will start going away. Because the very ignoring it is part of you turning away from self and turning to the Lord. But if you wallow in it, it gets worse and worse and worse. So as soon as we find ourselves in the cave of depression and despair, the answer is get out of the cave into the land of Judah, mind off of self, onto the Lord, ignore the way you feel, and just get on with serving the Lord. And uh, because the big problem here is quite simply me, me, me. It's self, self, self. And of course, being a disciple, our mind shouldn't be thinking me, me, me. We should be thinking the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, and others, others, others. And uh, someone said that joy, J-O-Y, is Jesus, others, yourself. And if we put ourselves last, the Lord first, boom, it's going to happen. Your mind is off of yourself and the negative feelings, they really do start to go away and the Lord deals with them. And so fear, discouragement, depression, despair, they're all satanic little caves which trap us. And Satan wants to lure us into these caves so that we're not, as it were, out on the field serving the Lord. They're little satanic Venus flytraps, these things, and we're the fly. And it's only when we learn to avoid them you know, that we're going to, you know, sort of like avoid ending up being eaten again and again by these Venus flytraps. Just go to John 11. Let's see the, uh, the New Testament position on caves. John, Gospel of John, chapter 11. Fascinating story here. John chapter 11. And it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Uh, now I'm going to read verse 38 and 39 and then 43 and 44. Right, so, so John 11 and verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Now verse 43. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now Lazarus is dead, he's buried. Where is he? Because where did they bury you in those days? He's in a cave. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says to him, come out of your cave. All right, and that is what Jesus says to us as well. It's a command. Come out of your cave. And this rolling away, the stone, I think is a picture of repenting of whatever it was that got us into that cave in the first place. And that stone keeps us in there. Repent of what got you in there, self-pity, um, cowardice or whatever, 
repent of that and that's like moving away the stone and then you can come out of uh, that cave and uh, now go to Mark 15 Mark chapter 15 and uh, let's have a look at an occasion you might not have realized this when Jesus himself landed up in a cave Mark chapter 15 and we'll start reading from verse 42 Mark chapter 15 and verse 42 this is after Jesus has died when evening had come since it was the day of the preparation before the Sabbath Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and Pilate wondered if he were already dead and summoning the centurion he asked him if he was dead and when he learned from him that he was dead he granted the body of Jesus to Joseph and he brought a linen shroud and taking him down wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock it was a cave Jesus was buried in a cave and he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb there's the stone again Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses saw where he was laid when the Sabbath was passed Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they, that they might go and anoint him and very early on the first day of the week they went to the tomb when the sun was up and they were saying to one another who'll roll away the stone from us from the door of the tomb and looking up they saw that the stone was rolled back for it was very large and entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were amazed and he said to them don't be amazed you seek Jesus he was crucified he's risen he's not here see the place where they have laid him now Jesus ended up in a cave and he died for us and when Jesus got out of his cave he made a way for us to always get out of our caves and the cave that held Jesus is empty now for all time Jesus will never end up back in a cave and that means that you and I can vacate our caves as well whenever we end up in one of these satanic little caves because Jesus is free from his cave and he went in it for us therefore we can come out of our caves and know that we can be completely free from these things because of his death so therefore Christian cavemen is an absolute no-no now we're going to be back to caves later on in the series because um, obviously we're going to see that uh, Elijah himself ends up in one so that was the something that Elijah had done hidden the prophets in a cave what we now move on to was uh, the something that Obadiah was thinking sorry Obadiah not Elijah sorry Obadiah now then um, what we see in this story Obadiah is a very strange reaction here Elijah appears to him and said go and tell Ahab that I'm here I want to see Ahab now Obadiah knew him knew who he was and Obadiah's reaction was incredible and he sort of says you know what have you got against me Elijah why are you doing this to me what what has God got against me that he should do this 
Obadiah saying, because what's going to happen, Ahab has scoured everywhere for you, nation after nation, and you're saying that I've got to go to him and say, Elijah wants to see you, and I'll go and get him, and I'll bring him back, and the Holy Spirit will whisk you away just as we arrive, and Ahab will think I'm playing about with him, and because he hates you so much, he'll take it out of me and he'll kill me. You know, Obadiah shaking in his boots, all right. And uh, odd reaction, he thought that the Lord was setting him up through Elijah. Uh, you know, he'd bring Ahab back and God would take Elijah away and Ahab would kill him. And uh, so what we've got here is a believer and a faithful one because Obadiah really followed the Lord. But the condition that he's in is this. All the time at the back of his mind, he, he thinks that God is rotten. He, he's fearing that God is out to get him. I.e., at the back of his mind, Obadiah is paranoid about the Lord. And he is paranoid. He thinks that eventually God's going to drop on him and really stitch him up once and for all. And uh, it's, it's what I call suffering from spiritual AIDS. The anticipation of impending doom syndrome. Because Obadiah spent his life waiting for God to get him. And even though he was a faithful believer, even though he was forgiven, even though he was saved, even though he knew the Lord, nevertheless, this guy lived just waiting for the moment when God was going to get him. The anticipation of impending doom syndrome. I lived like this for years. And, and it's only if you've lived like Obadiah that you can really understand how awful it is. It is horrible. And, uh, I mean, for years, over years, I developed the most ridiculous fears of God. And, uh, you know, I mean, especially when the Lord was really showing me my, my sin, um, you know, and stuff like that. And, and, but in my mind, it was all going too far. And, <clears throat> and it sort of, I kept thinking, you know, that I, I really have sinned myself out of salvation. You know, and, and, and I really thought, oh, you know, God's finished with me and, you know, I'm going to run out of grace any moment and, and tomorrow something's going to happen and that's going to be the end of it all. It's difficult, if you've not had fears like this, it's difficult to understand it. But Obadiah had them, and I certainly had them as well, living in this, this constant kind of any minute something so awful is happening and at last God is going to get me and he's going to do me. It was literally that feeling. It was terrible. But also, to, to live in that condition is a sin. Now, let me explain. Go to 1 John, the, the, the first letter of John, and uh, some verses here. 1 John, and find chapter 4. One John, chapter four, and uh, let's read from verse eight. And everybody writes here. He says, "He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God." sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. Now, you see, the point is here, it says God is love. And yet for many years, I really did, at the back of my mind, have a dreadful feeling that at rock bottom, God was going to be rotten. That God was going to get me. That irrespective of the fact that I was saved, that God's judgment would come crashing down on me. And it was a terrible, terrible feeling. And you see, the thing is, God is not rotten. He is love. God is love. And he showed how much he loved us by dying for us before we had the slightest interest in him. God is beautiful. I don't know if, if you remember that, that old cartoon, he loves those Mises to pieces. And, and that's exactly how God feels about us. He loves us as his own children. He delights in us. But what happened to me is that seeing more and more my own sinfulness so clearly, I lost sight of the forgiveness. I lost sight of the fact that I was a new creature in Christ. And, and I could only see my sin, my rottenness, and I ended up thinking that that's all God was looking at, and that what God would really have to get his hands on me and really sort me out. And that was completely a wrong picture. God is not in any way rotten at all. Lots of Christians have a wrong picture of what the cross is all about. They kind of um, have this picture that, that, that Father kind of wants to blast us. You know, that Father, he, God, he wants to judge us. But because Jesus died for us, and because we're born again, he, he can't. Because every time God goes to blast us, Jesus holds him off with his blood. You know, no, Father, they believed in me. Stand back, don't judge him, don't, don't you know, don't judge him. And so Father goes back into his room, kind of muttering under his breath because he couldn't let us have it. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of people have that picture of the cross, i.e. that whereas Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, that whereas Jesus has died for us and therefore our sin is dealt with, a lot of Christians still have the picture that God the Father is angry with us and wants to judge us but it is only Jesus' death on the cross that means he's got to keep his hands off of us. Now that is a completely wrong idea about the cross. Because it's practically making God the Father and God the Son at odds with each other. The point is that Jesus' death on the cross was God the Father's idea. You see what I mean? And the fact that Jesus died and we're born again that doesn't just mean that Jesus forgives us and that his blood covers us, but it means that Father God delights in us. The Holy Spirit delights in us. The entire Trinity is completely at peace with you and I because Jesus lives in us and because our sins have been dealt with. And so any idea that God is just itching to get his hands on you and that one day he really... Now, I mean, obviously we know that God will discipline us, and sort us out. But what I'm talking about is that Obadiah was really waiting for God to be absolutely horrible to him and to do something really rotten. And of course it's a totally wrong picture of God. And it leaves you living, as I say, with spiritual aids, the anticipation of impending doom syndrome. 
you go to bed at night wondering what might befall you in the morning. Now that is not the sleep of the saints, is it? But every night for years, I went to bed thankful that I got through that day alright, but fearful that he'd get me tomorrow. I mean, that is how I lived for years, and it was absolutely awful, and I was so frightened of him. I was so frightened of him. I could relate to Jesus alright, but Father, I was absolutely terrified of him. And at the back of my mind, I thought, if I ever get close to God the Father, the first thing he's going to do is give me the spiritual thrashing of my life. And I, I couldn't have been more wrong. And the terrible thing about this AIDS is that what does AIDS do? It neutralizes the mechanism in your body that defends you from bacteria. AIDS neutralizes your defense of your body against attack. And spiritual AIDS spiritually does the same thing against Satan. Because if you're suffering from spiritual AIDS like I was and like Obadiah was, it means that Satan can wipe the floor with you virtually any time he chooses. Think about it. If you're thinking that God's rotten, then where is your defence going to be against Satan, who you must therefore believe is even rottener? Do you see what I mean? <laughs> How do you defend yourself against the really rotten devil when you're trusting a rotten God to defend you? Do you see what I mean? So Satan can wipe the floor with you. Your defence against him absolutely, you know, you fall to bits. There's no defence. And after all, if you think God's not very nice, you're going to fall to bits when you're confronted with the devil, aren't you? If you think God's horrible, <laughs> who wants to be in spiritual warfare with Satan? And when this fear, uh, this wrong sort of fear of God, I mean there's a, a proper fear of the Lord, a holding him in awe, and knowing that if I go against him, it'll get me sorted. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact I was terrified of him. Even though I was a believer, I became terrified of him and I thought I'd lost my salvation and it was absolutely awful and Satan was wiping the floor with me. Now when you get to that condition you've got spiritual AIDS, you've got HIV, you're hellishly insecure and vulnerable and that's how I was for years. This insecurity all the time what you know what is going to happen to me when God really gets his hands on me. But, this thing about spiritual AIDS, because believe me, I, re I thought I was a goner. I really did think I was a goner. I thought I'd lost my salvation. Um, I thought that even if I could kind of like, um, you know, sort of work out what it was that got me so badly out of fellowship, that even if I could find out what it was and repented of it, that God wouldn't forgive me anymore. I really believed I got beyond forgiveness. That was the state I was in. And I really thought I was a goner. But, praise the Lord, there is a cure for spiritual AIDS. The vaccine is there, and it always has been. And it's simply this, to start believing the Word of God and ignoring how you feel. See, the thing is, <coughs> in all that insecurity, I was basing my security in how I felt. Now, what I discovered is that our security is in God's love. In fact, there we've got eternal security. Just go to Colossians, over to Colossians. Let me show you the, the security, the safety that we've got as believers. Colossians, 
And um, let's see if <laughs> I've lost this first. And uh, in chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and verse 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. For you have died, that's death to sin, we've been born again, we've been baptised, we share the death of Jesus to sin. Therefore, because of that, your life is hid with Christ in God. The picture here, you know these little Chinese boxes where you get a big box and you open it and there's another box inside. Identical but smaller and you open that and there's another one. And you open that and there's another one. And the picture here is that Jesus is hid in God. He's right in the middle of the Trinity. But we are hid with Christ in God. And can you see, what God has done, he's put us in Jesus, so we're box number one. And we go in box number two, that's Jesus. So we're locked up in Jesus, quite safe. But it's more than that, because God, box number three, then puts Jesus, box number two, inside him, but we're inside Jesus. And our life is hid with Christ in God. Now, you cannot get more secure than that. Where in Jesus, Jesus is in God, that is absolute security. But that isn't always what our feelings tell us. But that is the truth. And so the cure to spiritual aids, and, and it, it's sort of like you've got, to, you've got to take the medication over a long period of time. It doesn't happen quickly. It took months, but I definitely, I, I saw... I started to glimpse what was wrong, where I was being deceived, and so I started to ignore how I felt, and I went purely on the Word of God, and the Word of God told me that He loved me to bits. I didn't feel that. I, I, I couldn't uh, imagine it, that God could love me. But nevertheless, the Bible said that God loved me, and so I decided that I was going to believe the Bible and that what I was feeling and my outlook must be a deception from Satan. And that's what I did. And I found that the more I just went by the Word of God, that these terrible fears, this spiritual aids, started to remit. And it got less and less and less. Every now and then I get a little dose of it. But back to the Word of God and it's dealt with fairly quickly. Let's remind ourselves you're in 1 John, find 1 John 1 and verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the situation I got into, was that even though I was repenting of things, I was confessing things, I degenerated into, Lord, I've done it again, and I'm sorry, but I can't do anything about it. And although I was confessing my sins, I got into the state, the way I felt and the picture I had is that God was writing them all down and they were all there down against my account. You see what I mean? And all this sin was storing up. So, you know, and God had to judge me for it. And what had I forgotten? That when you confess a sin, it's gone. God forgets it. So I was saying, oh Lord, I've done it again. And I was destroying myself over it. And the Lord was saying, what? You've done it again? I didn't know you'd done that before. Because he'd eradicated it. And I'd forgotten that. 
and therefore I wasn't entering into any kind of peace of forgiveness at all. I was just getting more and more condemned with every hour of the day that went by. I'd forgotten this, the first key. If we confess our sins, he forgives our sins. So um, it wasn't. It wasn't going to be impending doom. I started to realise that. Then I remembered Romans 8.28. Go to Romans 8.28, and you remember on the salvation series, when we did work out your own salvation, I said these two were the key. Well, you know, these were the two keys. Well, now you're realising, because believe you me, the spiritual mess they got me out of. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him. Or as in the more well-known version, all things work together for good to them that love God and accord according to his purpose. So I was thinking, how can it be impending doom? Everything is going to work together for good, even my sins, even my failure. And as I started to believe all this that the Word of God was saying, God did love me, he treasured me, even though I, I needed sorting out and I was very sinful, yes, he treasured me, he loved me. And that every time I confessed a sin, he forgave. Didn't matter whether I'd done it before, he forgave me. And that everything was going to work out for good, even those sins I was so condemning myself about. And putting all this together over the months, that the AIDS started to fade, and I was able to enter back into God's love. I'd been there when I started off following him for the first few years, but when God really dealt with me and really was showing me my sinfulness, because I didn't have people to keep directing me to the truth of the Word of God, Satan got in and deceived me. And, oh, it was a terrible mess. But it was going back to the Word of God. And eventually, I was set free from that. It took a long time. It didn't happen overnight. But nevertheless, a real, you know, spiritual age, AIDS began to be overcome simply with the Word of God. And, uh, and of course, going back to the story with Obadiah, of course, when Obadiah came back with King Ahab, of course, Elijah was still there. You see, because when we get into this anticipation of impending doom and God's going to get me, it's all a massive illusion. It is the lie of Satan. It is demonic deception. And what did Obadiah fear? That he'd get back and that God would whisk Elijah away and that Ahab would think he'd tricked him and kill him. And of course Obadiah, he goes to get Ahab, so he's obedient, he steps out in faith and he brings Ahab back and of course Elijah was still there and Obadiah realised, of course, that his fears were absolutely needless. They were totally groundless. groundless. He was merely being deceived by Satan. And he was believing things that were contrary to what the Word of God teaches. And that is why the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And Satan attacks us with deception, getting us to believe things that are wrong. God hasn't forgiven you. You know, like you confess, you still feel guilty. The Bible says you're at peace. Satan says, no, you still feel guilty. God hasn't forgiven you. So we believe the lie. And condemnation. We've got to come at Satan with the sword of the Spirit and all this negative stuff to put it to one side. And uh, when we think like Obadiah, we must make sure that we actually repent of it. Because think about it, to, to end up thinking that God is rotten, to end up thinking that God 
is horrible. We might not understand what he's doing, but to think that God is rotten. As I look back now in those years, I can, the picture that I had of God was truly more fitting to have been a picture of the devil. Think about it. Isn't that my sinful nature gone mad? When we end up thinking that God is rotten, it's Satan who's rotten, not God. Oh, we're rotten, but not God. And the picture that I had of God, he might as well have been the devil himself. And what a terrible blasphemy. And what a victory for Satan when he actually is able to get us thinking about our lovely Lord in the way that would be more fitting that we thought about him. I mean, how can I sum it up? Over 20 years, what I can say is that the Lord is quite simply the nicest person that I've ever met. Now, I know today the word nice is a bit of a, you know, sort of like a parody word, but I'm meaning it in its truest form. The Lord is the nicest person I have ever known. And when I look back at some of the rotten things I've believed about him, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's awful to to end up believing Satan's lies about God. And so whenever, if ever, I hope it never does, but if ever spiritual aids appears, or if you're suffering from a dose of it at the moment and you're infected, what you've got to remember, there is a way out of it, and the way out of it is sticking to the Word of God alone. And that whereas for the situation that I was in, God was going deep in me, and much of, you know, what he was doing was brilliant. I was realising how sinful I was. God was dealing with me, showing me the truth about myself. But I lost sight of the balance. And I saw only the negative of what God was doing in me. And uh, I didn't have people who could keep redirecting me to the parts of the Bible that I needed to be directed to. And so I got deceived. The answer to it. If you haven't got it, there's a way to make sure you never do, and that is to practice safe spirituality. Stick 100% with the Word of God, and even in times when God does go really deep in you, and maybe he does put you through what the mystics called the dark night of the soul, there are times when God renders us naked before him, and we feel the shame we feel the filth of our lives and our hearts. But remember that God's doing that not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us. And he's doing it not so he can condemn us, he's doing it so he can forgive us. So practice safe spirituality. Everything has got to be viewed and looked at in the balance of the truth of God's word. So that was Obadiah and uh, on his spiritual aids trip. And um, from this point onwards, we start to approach the confrontation that follows between Elijah and Ahab. So we will continue next time.